This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Good afternoon. You're listening to the Daily Digest on the Bigger Picture. I'm Hezra Lashroff alongside Juliet Jacobs and Dashran Johan. So COVID-19 cases are back up across Malaysia, having surged above the 2,000 mark for four days in a row. And some health experts are concerned that we're entering a fourth wave. And with Ramadan bazaars and many social gatherings continuing despite the rise in cases, many people are calling on the government to reconsider suspending them. And to zoom, to zoom in on what can be done to tackle the surge, we're speaking today with that Professor Dr. Adiba Kamarul Zaman from University Malaya. Yes, but on that note, we're also wondering whether you're feeling comfortable about going out amid the recent spike in COVID-19 cases. So we have a Twitter poll running and we're asking you that. And your options are yes, completely, uh, only for errands or no, I'm staying in. So join that conversation today. Tweet us at BFM Radio or you can send us a WhatsApp message at 018-789-8899. That's right. So um, Hez, as you said earlier, the number of COVID-19 cases has surged above the 2000 mark since the end of last week for four consecutive days. So the highest was 2,551 uh, mm, new yeah. COVID-19 cases on Friday, with Sarawak setting a new daily record of 960. And this was the first time in over a month that the number had exceeded 2,000. So if you recall, Malaysia's record number of new daily cases was back on January the 30th with 5,278 cases. Yeah, so Mm. there are a lot of concerns, right? Because a lot of social gatherings have been allowed to resume, even though the number of new daily cases have stayed in the four-digit range. So this includes gatherings in places of worship, uh, weddings, kanduris, most businesses are open. And recently, the NSC or the National Security Council allowed all eateries to operate until 6 a.m. during the fasting month for states under the CMCO and the RMCO, which is all, um, which is basically all states, right? Mm-hmm. Actually, yeah. <laughs> um, and this includes all stalls, restaurants, um, including coffee houses and hotels, as well as fast food shops and food delivery services. Yeah, I, yeah, no states are currently under the MCO. And just to add to that, uh, Juliet, um, I think a lot of people are also back at work now. That's right. Uh, back in the office, and uh, Ramadan bazaars have been uh, operating as well. And you've probably seen pictures circulating online that, you know, many people have failed to enforce physical distancing. Uh, and, and this has been the case with those other events that are allowed, weddings, kanduris, and so on. Now, the government has issued SOPs, right? Uh, the most obvious being limiting the number of people at a social gathering um, events. But I think the problem here is physical distancing. That's right. So, for example, for m- uh, Muslim weddings, states under the CMCO can accommodate up to 50% of a venue's max capacity. Hmm. And and for those in RMCO areas, on the other hand, the number of guests allowed depends on the size of the premises. But the issue here, as has you just brought up, is physical dis- distancing or a lack of it in many cases. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and Health Minister Datuk Sri Dr. Adham Baba has said that this latest search doesn't actually represent a quote-unquote fourth wave because the number of cases from the third wave hasn't really declined yet. So it seems like a while ago, right? But if you recall, the third wave really set in last year on October 24th when the number of cases entered uh, into the four-digit range, Mm. right? And since then, we haven't been able to reduce the number of new daily cases to single digits, let alone two digits. And (laughs) if you remember, we had zero um, new daily cases on July the 1st of last year. Yeah, that seems ages ago. (laughs) Ages! Uh, Yeah, but, you know, I'm curious to to find out, right? What 
what are your how are you both feeling right do you uh, feel, feel comfortable going out are you going to restaurants or you know in your case Juliet going out to parks uh, <sighs> into nature again I I did at the start mm-hmm. um, and then last couple of weeks uh, because you know I did take my kids out especially to the park right yeah. and she felt sick and that was mm, it I was yeah. you know it was paranoia all over again mm. but at the same time you know you're sending them back to school we're all out and about mm. um, I'm just trying to reduce this as, you reduce it as much to just you know getting out for errands and trying to find stuff yeah. to do at yeah. home yeah. Yeah. I think I'm pretty much in the same boat I mean psychologically speaking we've talked about this quite a bit but it's weird how you know as you mentioned like last year July we had um, zero new daily cases <laughs> right but at that time we were also scared yeah. Even, yeah. even though it was zero cases you were like oh we cannot we need to keep it at zero everyone was so afraid yeah. but now despite it being you know, in the thousands 500s and all that mm. I think it's just, I don't know, we are just psychologically drained, I think you know, so. to really f- yeah. uh, follow all these things. But as Juliet mentioned, you know, the past couple of weeks, um, when, the, when the cases are just rising so much, mm. I think, you know, it's starting to click again that, you know, we need to be really, really vigilant or this yeah. would be just completely out of hand. Yeah, for me, for me, I'm, I'm just, you know, sticking to to my bubble, yeah. right, <laughs> of people um, uh, and, and just trying to uh, continue seeing the same people and, and not, you know, meet up with any new ones and just reduce the the amount of times i mean i have nowhere to go i'm fasting anyway so uh i guess <laughs> that helps uh but you know um you know on that note though uh you know to look at uh, ways we can address uh you know this this potential surge in cases where there's a third wave uh, or a fourth wave however you call it uh, we do have uh joining us that professor dr adiba kamaral zaman she's a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at university malaya prof thanks so much for joining us today so first things first, um, should we be calling this round of spikes a fourth wave when the number of cases hasn't really gone down from the thousands and uh, you know from the past few months? Uh, is it simply a continuation of the third wave, perhaps? You know, um, practically speaking, I think whether it's a third or a fourth wave is just semantics, isn't it? Um, and you're right, it hasn't really gone down to, you know, double digits, uh, let alone single digits. So I think what's important is how do we move forward with this? How do we deal with it, whether it's a third or a fourth wave? That's my take on it anyway. So how can we deal with it uh, right now or slow down the spread of the virus? We know cases will likely go up over the next few days because of the lags in detecting new cases due to the virus uh, hibernation period, right? And then the turnaround time for test results. Personally, I think um, we need to take a deep breath. (laughs) And rather than be reactive, really need to scrutinize the data very, very um, uh, deeply and understand where the infections are coming from, where the clusters are, where, um, you know, the, the biggest, uh, uh, biggest numbers are, where the biggest rates of change uh, are happening. So in order to do that, we really need to scrutinize the data very closely and look at the pattern of infection. And with that, we can target our intervention, hopefully much more effectively. You know, for instance, we see numbers in Slangor at 460 per day. Yes, that's that's a, a problem, but it, we also need to take into account 
that Selangor has a bigger population. So if we start seeing 460 people in Perlis, that's a problem. So we, we also need to look at the, the density of the population. So my take would be the, the first step we need to take rather than you know, be reactive and panic is to sit down and map out where these infections are occurring, uh, who is occurring in um, and where, obviously, and how quickly are the changes taking place, and then re-strategize and design our interventions accordingly. And Prof, have we gotten our strategy strategy right in terms of testing? Because that's been a point of contention, right? As many medical experts have been pushing policymakers to make RTK antigen tests more accessible since the turnaround time is less than the PCR tests and to also mass test certain areas. Yeah, unfortunately, the answer to that is no. You, you hit the nail on the head. I think one of the uh, main strategies that we need to look at is our national testing policy, not just in terms of what tests to use, but other than uh, Ministry of Health doing the contact tracing, you know, who else can we mobilize to do the kinds of testing that you you mentioned? Um, you know, the, the PKDs are work, have been working extremely hard for the last one and a half years. And by and large, they are doing contact tracing after after the fact, right? So um, one strategy is to look at where these hot zones are and do mass testing in that area using the RTK antigen and, and try and intervene in, in a, a population-targeted um, manner rather than individuals through the contact tracing method. But, yeah, in order to do that, we need A, better data, B, utilising artificial intelligence and and better digital technology. Mm. Now, do you think we've been, you know, lulled into a false sense of security where we think that just because we are wearing masks, we can forget about others' SOPs like distancing and ventilation? I'm thinking about the huge crowds at Ramadan bazaars where physical distancing hasn't been properly, properly enforced in most cases. I don't know whether it's a false sense of security or it's true pandemic fatigue. Um, You know, people have been cooped up for um, a while now, although, mind you, we've we've loosened up for for a while. Or whether people don't appreciate the importance of of distancing. Now, it's, it's easy to target the Ramadan Bazaar because it's visible, but if you look at it, um, you know, in terms of uh, risk, because it's outdoors, it probably, of course, the risks are still there if, if you know, people are cheek to jowl and queuing up. But in terms of the risk, it's probably lower than the risk of us allowing kanduris and weddings that, you know, uh, are happening, were happening before Ramadan quite, quite uh, actively, uh, because that's indoors, you know. So, uh, and that's why I said it's so important to know where these clusters are coming from. Um, And if you say it's from the Ramadan Bazaar, as you know, it takes at least 10 days to show up. So it's a bit early. We're only on our sixth day, seventh day of Wasa today. 
Nonetheless, I think we can do these Ramadan bazaars better rather than shutting them down completely is to maybe space out the stalls uh, a lot more, um, have better crowd control, or uh, for state governments and federal governments to support these much-needed businesses through um, digitization. I don't know if it's too late to do that, but through deliveries, etc., etc. On that note, we do need to go for a quick break. Uh, we're speaking today about ways to contain the latest spike in COVID-19 cases, together with Dato Professor Dr. Adiba Kamarul-Zaman, Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at University of Malaya. We'll be back. Keep it here on the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to the Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture. I'm Hezra Lashraf alongside Juliet Jacobs and Dashran Johan. Today we're discussing concerns around the latest surge in COVID-19 cases and ways they can be addressed together with Dr. Professor Dr. Adiba Kamarul-Zaman, the Professor of Medicine and Infectious Diseases at UM. Yes, and on that note, we're actually asking you over on Twitter, do you feel comfortable going out amid the recent spike in COVID-19 cases? So your options are yes, completely, or only for work and errands, or no, I'm staying in. So take that poll. It's on our BFM Twitter. Just tweet us at BFM Radio or you can even send us a WhatsApp message at 018-789-8899. All right, Prof. Thanks for staying on the line with us. Now, earlier you mentioned that Ramadan bazaars pose a lower risk to other types of, uh, compared to other types of indoor gatherings that have been allowed in recent weeks, like weddings and kanduris. Does the government need to reconsider the type of events and gatherings that are allowed um, to curb the number of rising cases? You know, I'm, I'm acutely aware of the need to keep uh, the economy going, but um, it is also important, I think, to uh, empower the citizens and get them to realise that the longer we persist, the harder it is to go back to normal. And even private gatherings of more than I don't know, 10 people, uh, it's, it's dangerous so, or it's, it's dangerous and not warranted. So I think getting each and every citizen to understand that is, is so important. So I think, yes, limiting um, the number of people gathering without sort of completely locking us in um, is, is, I think, um, one way forward. And how much are more infectious variants contributing to the spread in cases? Um, MOH has detected at least three so far, right? Um, from the UK, South Africa and Nigeria. Yeah, so I'm not privy to uh, all, of the, all of the data apart from what you um, have mentioned as well. We are doing some at UMMC on the patients, some on the patients that, that we admit and are starting to see um, different types of variants. So it is a concern and, and it's definitely something we need to keep a very close eye on and have a proper surveillance system. I think in the UK, um, they were, or even in South Africa, which has a very good you know, surveillance for the variants, we need to really test a substantial number of uh, patients. I think something like in, in the UK was as high as 35% uh, to get a good picture of what's happening. And I, this is crucial because of concerns about transmissibility with the different variants Recent studies have shown that it may not contribute to more severe disease, 
but um, we definitely need to know what's going on um, for the clinical effect, as in will it lead to more severe disease. Um, for uh, public health reasons, in terms of will it be much more transmissible? And then thirdly, of course, um, in terms of uh, the vaccine programs and the choice of vaccines. And Prof, how can the, de- the detection of more infectious variants in a particular area inform uh, public health measures and interventions uh, like uh, TEMCOs and increased testing, for example? Yeah, I think knowing the variants, the, the types of variants present um, is definitely very important. But at this point in time, I don't know whether it's the number one thing. I think there's still uh, lots we can do to try and curtail the, the current spread using uh, standard public health measures that we discussed before, like testing, um, getting people to comply. I, I know it, it sounds like a broken record, but, um, you know, obviously the punitive action's not working. <laughs> and, well, and studies have shown that punitive actions will only work to a certain point. After that, people will risk assess and then say, uh, you know, I'm, I'm going to be able to escape this and I'm going to take the risk anyway. Um, so it, it has to be, you know, that they themselves want to protect their loved ones, etc., etc. So in short, um, having a active surveillance system for the variant is super important, like I said, for those three main reasons. But we don't have to wait to see the variants that's causing the problem. Uh, you know, in in terms of taking um, immediate actions uh, using the data that we have. Okay, now can we zoom in on the rise of cases in schools and daycare centres, right? Because I think that's obviously a very big concern as well. What can we attribute it to and why is it important to make the vaccination of teachers an urgent priority? Yeah, so in a way, I think the clusters in schools are, are probably reflecting what's happening in the community. So like in hospitals, the larger proportion of uh, infections that we detect at our hospital, UMMC, uh, are healthcare healthcare workers who were infected in the community, not not from a hospital uh, acquired infection. And, you know, I, I, I would imagine that's what is happening at schools as well. So until and unless you control Um, infections within the community, you're going to continue seeing these clusters within schools. And so that's why the WHO has a kind of guidelines on what to do with schools based on community level transmission, something that we should probably take a look at. There's a lot, I know I was getting calls right, left and centre last week on what to do with friends uh, whose children were at school and, you know, some schools were calling for closure and a lot of frustration amongst parents. I think clear guidelines on on what to do if you have, you know, one or two infections, I don't think that it should call for a closure of schools, uh, particularly if the community transmission is not raging. So clear uniform guidelines, I think. I don't think we, we should be allowing, as, as rumours went, that it's up to the principals to do what they like, especially for private schools. I disagree with that. I think Ministry of uh, Education and Ministry of Health need 
to work together and come up with clear guidelines on what to do when. And uh, in terms of vaccinating teachers, uh, yes, I, I would be in support of that, um, you know, because really the aim should be to get children back to school in full. Now, what measures do you think the government uh, should continue? What's, what's working, Prof? Like I said uh, from the beginning, Hazrael, I think, you know, a piecemeal approach is, is probably not the right approach now. I think we need to take a deep breath, look at the data and go back to the drawing board. But, but the, the, the basic principles would be to expand the testing with, you know, uh, rapid turnaround time and isolate and really detect the cases as, as quickly and as widely as possible. Um, otherwise, we're heading towards another, you know, widespread lockdown. Now, Prof, are there measures that you had hoped the government would implement that haven't been implemented just yet? I recall the letter you had signed on to address to the Prime Minister, Tantri Muhyiddin Yassin, which contained a list of measures for the government to adopt. Seems like a long time ago. <laughs> Digitization. Digitization. Um, you know, I was privileged to, to join a seminar um, that the National Taiwan University held two weeks ago. I was speaking at that and uh, listened to the presentation by the Taiwanese CDC. And, you know, um, they used digital technology in a major way. And look at Taiwan, you know, hardly any cases, hardly any deaths. I think it's still not too late. We have lots of capable IT digital people um, to help us do that. The concern is always around um, PDPA, the uh, you know privacy, etc. But I'm sure um, there are ways that uh, we can do all this without really jeopardizing our privacy. I mean, after all, Google is already tracking us wherever we go, anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and many people are already wondering if interstate travel will be allowed for Raya. What are your thoughts? You know, can there be a way to allow it while still keeping the number of cases under control, or should the government simply ban interstate travel for Raya? Mm, mm, that's a tough one. You know, I, I I think for really green areas like Perlis, uh, I believe Tranganu. There's some states that are really, really, you know, not seeing cases. I personally think that it shouldn't allow uh, people coming in. But within states that are already having um, high levels of transmission, and I think this is why it's it's important to look at the epidemiology in terms of the size of the population and looking at the rates of change. But if I was someone in living in a Green, really, really green area. I would be nervous about letting people from, you know, states that have high rates of, of infection coming in. And uh, yeah, because uh, it only takes one or two to spark. And and you know, the nature of Hari Raya is you don't just gather with two people. You know, you have the whole kampung to visit. So that's that is the problem. You know. If we allow people to Barantas Negri and then say you can only have five in the house, but Malaysians being Malaysians, do you think they're going to stick to that? <laughs> 
All right, Prof. Before I let you go, what are your thoughts on the vaccination program and how it relates to keeping transmissions under control? So, you know, in, in order for us to really try and contain this pandemic, apart from massively scaling up testing with a quick turnaround and, and isolating and contact tracing, etc., the second is, of course, you know, and, and in order to do that, we need to um, improve our digital technology to support all, all of that exercise. But the second um, or the third uh, major attention that we need to give to is a vaccination. I think there's a perception that it's going a little too slowly. I understand that that's partly due to the supply of the vaccine um, and, and, you know, that that's unfortunate. But, you know, we need to continue to encourage people to, to register and to come forward. There's been concern with recent reports that there have been, you know, healthcare workers who um, have been infected despite being vaccinated. And unfortunately, this gives uh, bullets to the anti-vaxxers in the community. It's something that we know um, will happen. Uh, even the best of vaccines, the Pfizer vaccine, the, the efficacy rate is 95%. So that, that message, that constant message that vaccines, first and foremost, reduce severe disease and mortality and will help reduce transmission needs to be played over and over again. Great you are, Prof. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. That was Professor Dr. Adiba Kamarul-Zaman, a professor of medicine and infectious diseases at UM. And uh, we were looking at ways we can tackle the latest surge in COVID-19 cases after new daily cases exceeded 2,000 for the past four days. Yeah, and I think there were quite a few things that Prof suggested that frankly have already been suggested for quite some time Mm. now, right? I mean, to expand testing and mass target, uh, mass test targeted areas with RTK antigen kits which give you uh, faster results and to digitize, find a way to make full use of people's data and movements. Yeah, and I remember, you know, hearing from past experts on the station, right, they've suggested using uh, people's credit card info because you can track where people go to buy things, mm. right, as well as ICs because uh, especially they use them uh, for touch and go on the toll roads and uh, on public transport. So the, the, there are existing ways to do it and ways to, um, you know, make sure that, that people's privacy are, are, you know, it's not used for for other things mm. that are undesired. Yeah, and and speaking of travel, you know, we were asking you on uh, on Twitter whether you felt comfortable going out amid the recent spike in all these COVID nineteen cases. Mm. So, uh, so far, about sixty three point five percent of you, the majority of you, say mm. only for work or errands. Uh, another twenty two, almost twenty three percent of you, have said yes, completely comfortable going out. I'm not in that group at all. <laughs> and another 13.5% of you have said, no, I am staying in. Um, Eric tweeted in to say that he thinks that a majority of Klang Valley people are comfortable judging from the crowds at shopping centers and the jams on the road. Yeah. I couldn't agree yeah. with yeah. Scary, yeah, you. Know? The cars, the cars. Yeah. I, I don't know. That's just something I've had to deal with. Well, it's I amazing. I assume everyone's back, back at to work. work. Yeah. You know, schools are open. Yeah. So that it's that same jam that we always yeah. get to contend yeah. with. Yeah. Before, Pre-COVID right? jam, but isn't it? It's crazy considering the amount of cases we <laughs> have yeah. actually yeah yeah hopefully um you know we we do something about them soon and, and do our part to to curb the number of mm-hmm. cases um you know unfortunately that's all the time we do have for today's show but you can continue to uh, tweet your uh, messages at bfm radio you can also send us a message on whatsapp at 018-789-8899 and you can also look us up on uh, the facebook uh, page on bfm the bigger picture you can drop us a message there and if you've missed any part of today's uh, show you can download our podcast at 
bfm.my forward slash daily digest or on the bfm app now uh, coming up at 3 p.m on a uh brighter note hopefully julia will be sticking around for uh an, an, another a- episode of earth matters yes that's right i'll be speaking to uh, celine lim from save rivers which is an organization based in sarawak um, and we're actually going to be talking about how the baram community are working together with all the different stakeholders to kind of protect what's theirs i'm, I'm sure we all know there's a lot of um threat to um land in sarawak mm-hmm. so this this is how the indigenous communities themselves are sort of like not say fighting back but just working together to to ensure that their rights are upheld mm. Right, then just do make sure you stay tuned for that. Once again, I'm Hazrul Ashraf alongside Juliet Jacobs and Dashran Johan, and you've been tuned in to The Daily Digest on The Bigger Picture, BFM 89.9. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.